Welcome to Pace Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with track and field coach and expert in performance data, Cal Vale. Hi guys, thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. Just before we get going, I'd just like to say a big thank you to all those left messages uh, and feedback, positive feedback uh, on the podcast in the last couple of weeks. Today, I've got Carl Vale on the line. Carl uh, is an absolute genius. I've personally listened back to the podcast um, before it went out a couple of times just to go over some of the stuff that he's been talking about. Um, we discuss uh, monitoring fatigue and redness in athletes and his kind of view on that. Uh, we discuss the use of heart rate and heart rate monitoring, uh, heart rate variability and heart rate recovery. And the topic that I really wanted to uh, pick Carl's brain about was velocity-based training. He does lots of um, articles on Freelap USA and in 2015 moving across to spikesonly.com. And I just wanted to pick his brain because he's done a lot of articles on velocity-based training, so I just wanted to kind of um, get a little bit more in-depth in, in, in his current views on it. Towards the end of the podcast, I also discuss his thoughts on jumping for team sport athletes. He, one of the most popular articles that he's done uh, is jumping for speed athletes, so I just wanted to get his view on how that transfers across to uh, the team environment. Just before I get going, if you want to keep in touch with everything that's going on in the podcast, you can keep to date uh, if you follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just download the app uh, on your phone or tablet and just press the subscribe button and it all comes through. You can also listen online if you don't have iTunes, if you go to paceperformance.co.uk and go to the podcast and blog tab. If you do go online and uh, listen through the paceperformance.co.uk, there's also a PDF available from Carl uh, that covers quite a lot of the, the issues that he brings up on monitoring. So it's a free download uh, and people can get, get their hands on that. And last but not least, I just want to let you know about some seminars that uh, a previous guest on the podcast are doing. Uh, Kirwen and Flat, who appeared on episode two when it was uh, the podcast was very raw. Um, he's coming over from Australia to do some seminars on um, career development. The dates are December the 13th uh, at Results Inc. in Manchester. December the 15th at EPF Gym in Belfast and December the 16th at Storm Fitness in Newcastle. So if you are um, wanting that kind of information, it'll be a great day. Uh, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. And if you do want any more information on any of the seminars, you can pop over to Keir's website, which is rugbystrengthcoach.com, or you can get all the information on Twitter um, with his Twitter handle, which he mentioned in the podcast in episode two. Uh, so that's a little shout out. Uh, but before I go on anymore, uh, here is the interview with Carl. Hi guys, thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. Again, really excited about the guest I've got coming up today in Carl Vale. First came across Carl's work uh, on Freelap USA and a couple of articles that he'd written. Really liked the stuff that he's putting out and his kind of no-nonsense style. So I decided to get him on the line. Um... I just want to welcome Carl, thank him for his time, and would you mind just giving us a little bit of uh, biography on your, your kind of past, your education and your 
what you're currently doing? Thanks, Rob, for the introduction. I'll try to keep this brief because I know most people want to get right into the training questions, uh, the technology discussion, and uh, you know some of the monitoring uh, information that uh, I think most people want to know. Uh, I was an athlete. Believe it or not, uh, did track and field and swimming. Had mixed results with both sports. Uh, learned a lot. Had some great coaches, uh, but wasn't good enough to, to compete at the D1 level. So I decided to head down south to the University of South Florida, specifically their uh, you know physical education program uh, in wellness and exercise science. So uh, got my degree there. Did an internship with the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, some amazing Olympic athletes were training there in track and field. Uh, a lot of UK athletes. So for your UK listeners, uh, Colin Jackson and Linford Christie uh, did some stints down there in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, really fell in love with track and field, even though my career wasn't very successful. Um, just amazing stuff with that they were doing. So I really wanted to, to focus on that. And around 2001, uh, after 9-11, headed back to... Uh, to Boston, coached college uh, and track, uh, high school track again, and uh, just recently uh, decided to focus on post-collegiate, uh, specifically the intermediate level, national level athlete that uh, doesn't have the shoe contract. So that's why I came up with Spikes Only. Um, Spikes Only is a sprint-specific uh, track and field resource. And the purpose of that is to help with sponsorship for the athletes and working with technology companies so that they can use uh, the athletes as a way to learn from uh, and take advantage of the data that they're collecting so the products can be developed better. So that's what I'm doing now. Ah, very cool. So I just wanted to move on and get into the um, meat of the discussion, really, and ask you about uh, monitoring train load. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a background on the kind of things that, um, the kind of practical ways that you've measured uh, external internal load and the the kind of methods that give the most bang for your book uh, and which have been most uh, valuable, interpretable? Very good question, Rob, and that's a popular one. Right now, when people come inbound and ask me for suggestions on uh, athlete monitoring, the first thing I do is I step back and explain the differences between internal and external load, which is usually the differences between training data and then uh, physiological monitoring, which is sort of the complement to the actual training data. Training trumps monitoring. If you're not doing a good job with the training, you're just monitoring uh, noise. And I think it's easy right now with the technology and sensors to get data uh, but that's not as important as making sure that the training and adaptation process is smooth. So four little tips I have is if you want to have a monitoring program, after you get the training to be solid, you have good participation, you don't have problems with attendance in the weight room, um, several soccer clubs, you know, they do all this stuff. They're looking at, you know, heart rate variability, but guys are allergic to iron and sweat in the weight room. So it just doesn't matter. If you're doing BOSU ball squats as your main stimulus for strengthening the legs, you have uh, bigger fish to fry than worrying about uh, you know, some sort of neuromuscular readiness. Um, so 
four principles. Um, I'll go over them of a successful monitoring program. First one, speed. The second one is sexy. The third one is simple. And the fourth one, and probably the most important, is it's sustainable. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, the end product of the uh, previous three S's. Speed can't take too long. We have a finite amount of uh, time with the whole process, and this is why I like to use uh, you know products and, and tools that are getting rapid information. Um, so whatever the process is, make sure it's a couple minutes a day tops. If it starts stretching beyond a few minutes, sustainability drops, and then athlete compliance just basically plummets. The next one is sexy, and that's what I try to focus my energies on is because Remember, athletes are giving you information. Um, sometimes contracts force them to, uh, uh, you know, give certain data, wear a certain device. But what we want is awesome compliance. We want athletes throwing data at you, not begging for it. So I just put a lot of my energies on the uh, social behavioral aspects of monitoring, making it a, a fun process. Again, remember what it's like to be an athlete. If you're not using the products or using the tools that you're having others do, that's the first sign of that not being sustainable. Third is simple. When it gets complex and there's too many steps, it just, even if the athlete's compliant, it just, it just fails. So we want to do is minimize the amount of steps and, and, and make it easy for people. And of course, the last one is, can this be done over time? If it loses its sex appeal, you know, such as subjective indicators, you know, by the third month, they're just giving you a quick response. They're not really giving you good, solid information. So you have to start thinking about an athlete. If they're going to be doing this for more than a few years, are these questions in this process going to be sustainable? So those are the most important uh, elements of creating a good athlete, man uh, athlete monitoring system. Would you mind just giving us a little overview about the uh, subjective monitoring and maybe a little bit about um, the popularity of the wellness questionnaires? So let's get into the five top metrics. Uh, I believe that we have to start off with the human element. Let's go into subjective indicators. Usually scores one through five using smartphones. That's a, a nice, simple, and inexpensive way to get information. Longitudinally, daily data rocks, and you have to make sure that you make it so that you're using it, giving the athlete feedback so they know that uh, you're not just storing it on a server. You want to make sure that the athlete knows that you're doing something with it, even if you're ignoring the information. Athlete's tired and you do another hard day. Well, if the athlete is, is aware that you're uh, purposely trying to really dig deep in these adaptations, they're going to keep doing this. If you are sore and you're tired and everything is just crashing and you're a fitness coach or preparation coach or strength and conditioning specialist and you're sitting next to the, the team coach and you're the athlete and you're saying, hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm getting murdered out here for days and this guy is just sitting there doing nothing. He's on the sidelines. So I think it's really important that they know that you're doing something with the data. If they're giving it daily, you got to give back a daily indication that you're doing something. So with facial coding, I just think that that is going to be the direction that people need to be 
so that you can get a little bit more data mining. You know, when someone gives you an answer, one through 10, there's a lot of uh, data being lost. You know, how you're asking the question, how they're responding. Facial coding allows the coach to kind of get into the emotional side, seeing some uh, things such as, you know, is there sort of irritation that the athlete's experiencing? He's, he's basically frustrated. Um, is he he heading towards some sort of depression? Um, meaning not clinical depression, just, he's just not having a good time, you know, and that's important. So facial coding because of software developer kits and mobile phones, look for that to, to add a little bit more richness to subjective indicators. Then we have warming up. Warming up is the ultimate screen. Uh, I showed uh, a picture on, on social media of the run scribe looking at someone Every footstep, every foot strike, you know, the whole process of going from basically being stationary all the way to ready to play a game or, or practice. So I think that the warming up process, either, you know, you can use military grade thermal cameras to make sure they're actually warming up and not just lying around talking and, and stretching. You know, actually getting prepared is a huge, huge valuable resource. So when a pilot, I have a, a colleague and a friend uh, who is a, who's a pilot, I always try to ask a few questions because checklist, the checklist, uh, the checklist manifesto, you know, that book is a great way to say, okay, are we ready to, to take off? And I think we should have a, a simple process. I did a uh, article for Elite Fitness years ago. It was was really just not my best work, but it outlined a nice way to say, are you ready to sprint? And that type of uh, thought process is, is extremely important for today's team sports. They're not warming up. They, you know, they, you know, they stretch and, and kind of stand, uh, sit around the same thing that they're doing 20 years ago. So let's get on our feet, start moving and using that as a way to get information too. So then the next thing is the whole readiness, you know, fatigue and, and, and a lot of people are using Omega Wave and Check My Level. They're trying to see neuromuscular fatigue, something more peripheral, and they're trying to get something, you know, hacking the brain, if you will, with the EEG indications of Omega Wave. Uh, I think that, is inf that information is valuable, but then you got to look back into the emotional side. You know, uh, you know, these athletes will find a way to get the job done. So I know that there's some limitations to... Uh, you know, physiological readiness. Uh, I think people need to see is what you can get from it and what to kind of let stay, you know, let that alone and, and not worry about. Uh, the fourth uh, metric I really find is extremely important is uh, blood analysis. Uh, being in the Boston area, I get to take advantage of all of these companies in the Cambridge uh, innovation area. Um, and I've been using uh, Inside Tracker for, for years. With my athletes, I believe that uh, a simple blood screen is the first step to seeing if there's any problems and, and try to basically uh, manage potential problems that can cause a crash. You know, for example, low ferritin. Uh, I posted on the iThlete blog about, you know, the, combining the usage of heart rate variability and blood analysis. I believe that all teams need to do more than their preseason blood draw. You want to do it at least quarterly. I do it every month, and I'm going to actually uh, share that data with people so they can understand what to do with it. There's so many biomarkers. There's so many options out there. What you want to do is make it simple. Just do the draw. 
get the information and see how you can use nutrition, vitamin and minerals, hormonal analysis, you know, looking at overtraining and, and, and potential uh, adaptation errors. And then, of course, looking at some of the more sophisticated ones on inflammation, managing injuries. So that is a, a essential part. And when data is getting easier with blood analysis, meaning it's becoming cheaper, it's becoming faster, less blood, uh, you're getting um, uh, the results instantaneously through a uh, maybe some sort of mobile device down the road. The problems in the past of getting that antiquated piece of paper, you know, with a summary of black and white clinical ranges, that is what I've been facing with since the late 90s. And now with the software as a service type of uh, solutions such as a MegaWave, iFleet, Check My Level, Inside Tracker, coaches are able to look at their dashboard, sometimes use an API to feed it to a, an athlete management system dashboard. And, and really get better decision-making from that information, that data set. So that leads us to the, the, of the very popular metric, which is heart rate variability. People love HRV because clearly with a mobile phone, you can get a daily indication. You're getting resting heart rate, which is, I think is still important. Um, it's not a perfect indication of being fit, but if you have a 65 beat per minute resting heart rate, you're probably not going to win the Boston Marathon. Um, so you can get some information just from a crude uh, heart rate, uh, resting heart rate indication. And you also can get a lot of information from HRV tracking daily. And then that, those, that mixture of information can get, you know, a, a decent indication of readiness. You know, ANS fatigue, as, as, as people are coining it, you know, looking at the autonomic nervous system and looking at some sort of strain metric. I think that's important, but then you got to understand there's a much difference between being ready to explode and then ready for a hard practice. I think uh, heart rate variability is more in terms of volume, and I think neuromuscular and central fatigue is more uh, intensity or explosiveness. So those are some important metrics that all coaches need to understand and, and, and capitalize on. So are we backing up the wrong tree when it comes to monitoring fatigue? That's probably the most important part of this podcast, Rob, is What's the difference between monitoring for fatigue and managing power? They're pretty much synonymous, but in reality is it's the attitude. I look at managing power just because I don't want athletes to be scared and thinking, oh, I'm getting tired, I'm going to tear my ACL. I think managing power allows people to understand that fatigue is natural, it's part of the process, but let's not get spooked. So the parable of uh, the campfire stories, the ghost stories that people are saying, um, leading into the uh, you know the little young scout heading back to their tent and seeing ghosts. If you look for fatigue, you'll find it. And I think that the the best thing to do is to be positive, understand and appreciate fatigue, but also realize that it's it's it's, it's a natural part of the training process. Specifically with you know if you're trying to really drive an adaptation. So what I look at it is I try to focus on developing power um, and then you can start seeing how you can really challenge the body and, and get it to adapt properly and improve it versus sort of accepting well we're just going to go through a maintenance program and we're going to do the slow rot technique and yet in a modern uh, you know in modern sports the the schedule is for entertainment and not for athlete development so yeah you're probably going to be having a difficult 
uh, challenge of, of, of dealing with a long season and a lot of competition. And you're going to probably have that slow leak, as, the, as everyone's talking about, that, yeah, you're, you're just trying to keep them uh, stoking the fires because it's really difficult to train when you're competing so much. But still, you can do a lot by having a positive outlook and focusing on managing power. And I think the, the podcast you had with Mike was great. We need a, a, an approach such as that. No, that's really good stuff. That's certainly a, a topic that's interested me over the last couple of uh, weeks and months. Just want to move on a little bit and ask you about heart rate monitoring. It seems kind of out of date with all the stuff that's been brought out in the last you know, five years, but is it still still a valid metric for uh, monitoring athletes? Very good question again. Uh, I think that heart rate monitoring still is important. I think people are getting bored of heart rate, but you got to remember that uh, just because it's boring doesn't mean it doesn't work. And a lesson learned from Marco Cardinali when he was presenting at the BSMPG, um, you know, two conferences ago, he had a good point about creatine and how, yes, we know it works. It's been used for, for decades. And, you know, people are forgetting to under, appreciate what the tried and true supplements are. They see something coming out. They get excited, they start researching it, and they forget, hey, are we still doing the basics and doing what works and maintaining that versus putting all efforts into uh, something new and trendy? So with heart rate, yeah, you need to get it if you're going to get HRV, which is very convenient, a, a morning indication of, uh, of, you know, you can argue readiness. Um, Heart rate, morning, you know, morning resting heart rate is a is a very crude way to get someone's fitness. You know, if someone has a resting heart rate of 43, that does not equate to winning the, you know, the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. But it, you know, you're not going to see too many resting heart rates for uh, of uh, you know 65, uh, you know, indicating that someone's going to be successful in the endurance um, in the endurance world, a low resting heart rate provided that you interpret it right, you know, after training and over longitudinal, uh, time periods, uh, will be an indication as if someone has that capacity for endurance. Um, there are adaptations that happen to the heart to, to make resting heart rate improved. So there's something to be said for that. Then we get into the, the tricky part, which is heart rate recovery. I think, Learning from the NFL, there's a, a weekly game that happens. Sometimes it's two in one week on Thursday night football. But, uh, you know, every team usually does some sort of tempo recovery run. I have no idea. I, I still am confused with the literature. You know, is uh, recovery training hap- uh, helping the, the training block, you know, the monthly uh, capacity to handle stress? Is it an acute response so that the next day you feel fresher? I think it's trending towards more that recovery training is helping uh, create a, a natural pattern of work and rest and that you're not overtraining by doing two hard days. So it's not necessarily that you're recovering from the training. You're just recovering because you're not doing two hard days back to back. So that high, low or easy, hard method, you're probably getting more of a active recovery from not overtraining versus you know, some sort of uh, physiological response to heal quicker or, you know, to to recover from. So I do think that a greater capacity of fitness is going to help you adapt in the long run. So I think from a, a recovery standpoint, you're helping the uh, the body 
improve the capacity to handle work, but I don't think you're getting an acute response as much as we believed in the past. So getting into that uh, example of recovery runs, uh, because they tend to be standardized and, and, and percentages of rest, provided that you're using some sort of way to accurately get velocities, and I'll get more into that later, I think that tempo running is probably the best way to evaluate conditioning. You mentioned the heart rate recovery. Uh, is there any standardized protocol for that? So I'm going to get into the details of interval recovery training. Um, either after a, a competition or after uh, you know, a hard training session when they're not practicing, meaning you're not doing small-sided games or some sort of easy half-court uh, you know, practice session. You know, Basically, a conditioning day that is away from the ball, away from the sport-specific activity. Um, probably more applicable to professional soccer playing once a week or, or the NFL that does a, a, usually a weekly game. And the next day, uh, you kind of have three tiers of, of, of athlete medical readiness, I consider it. Uh, you know, and and I, I named this after a, a summer, you know, sort of a, a game we played when we were lifeguarding is, is sick, dying, dead. You know, uh, you know uh, after a game, guy's kind of uh, impaired and he's a little bit uh, a little tired and sore. So you do some re- recovery runs. And that's appropriate. So that's sick. Dying is when a guy has a, like a, a couple strains. They're not really injuries, but you know, it's just at that threshold where it probably makes sense to do a bike routine. So you kind of have less of a of a of a ballistic strike to the to the in, in the pounding of running. And uh, you know, so bike routines are appropriate for this. And then uh, finally, when someone's coming in really really broken down, maybe even injured hop in the pool and do some, uh, you know, aquatic type intervals. So you have the running intervals, you have the bike routines, and then you have the aquatic program. And that's naturally deloading. So you're going from uh, high level gravity to partial gravity to almost microgravity. So those type of uh, modalities are unique, but they also have some similarities. You can use duration or velocities uh, running velocity and distances are appropriate for the a running interval program. From a bike routine, you're usually using duration, work-to-rest ratios, uh, adjusting the bike uh, seat so you're getting a certain RPM, um, getting certain enzymes working there. And then you move towards the uh, aquatic program, which is you know deep water running to you know almost a like a senior citizen, you know, spa-like activity where you're doing a lot of almost a Zumba class in the pool. And that's really important because a lot of guys that can't swim, you got to choose if you're going halfway, uh, waist deep, which is going to have a different effect from deep water running. Um, Can you work with guys in a group? Obviously, you know, you can set up five bikes a lot easier than sending someone to uh, do like an alter G, which is, you know, a one-to-one ratio. You can kind of uh, get more of a group training session for a shallow routine and some pieces of equipment. Um, we've done at hotels, you know, probably every single uh, Hilton is a, and, and Weston Hotel is upset with us that we grab their plush uh, towels and we use them for aquatic uh, dumbbells for doing, you know, different patterns because, uh, you know, sometimes doing lower body training, even in the pool is a little bit uh, difficult. 
But when you do all of these routines with a systematic order and structure, you can also convert loosely to the uh, conditioning status week to week. So if a guy goes from able to do running and you want to have continuity with the data, you're going to have to almost come up with ways to make sure that the, you're s simulating the previous modality of running with the bike routine. And then, of course, you match that up with a corresponding interval system that kind of replicates a bit to the uh, bike routine. And when you do that, you can see all of the trends week to week. And this is how you get into interpreting the actual heart rate data. So from your opinion, is there any massive pitfalls using heart rate, uh, heart rate variability and heart rate recovery? Okay, so the pitfalls. Like I mentioned earlier, interpretation is king here. And I think we need to have a limit to what we can get from heart rate data. Of course, none of the heart rate companies are going to say that. They're going to say, oh, you can do all these proprietary metrics and you know, we're doing surveillance and, you know, uh, early warning systems and, you know, they're going to always try to, to, to sell the heart rate data, which is important because it still matters. But then again, there's a limit. So my limit is beyond TRIMP in a, in a training session for practices. I think that's the threshold where you're going to have to say, you know what, enough is enough. Um, when you're trying to get information from very lab-like uh, protocols of conditioning from a strength conditioning coach on the recovery intervals and you start going into trying to analyze the details of practices, even small-sided games and, and, and those type of things, you got to be careful because even if you're getting GPS data, there's so much psychological and, and gaming that's going on that a lot of interpretation is you're getting into fantasy world if you're going to start saying, well, we're able to split hairs and we can tell that this athlete is starting to get overreaching because at this play or this snap during practice, we're seeing, you know, a spike here and we're seeing some sort of, you know, a specific pattern that's detected by our proprietary algorithm. That's getting into science fiction territory. What you really got the limit of is, okay, what's the, the output that he did for the session? And if you're doing everything else right, you can solve for X if you know Y and Z. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Um, just forgive me a little bit because I'm, I'm just writing notes as you speak here. But just want to move on a little bit and ask you about velocity-based training. I know it's a topic that you've, you've spoke at length on uh, in your articles. I'm just wanting to get your kind of rationale behind using it, uh, who can use it, and why you'd gravitate towards that as opposed to more traditional methods. Okay, so let's get into uh, some technology, some data, um, some interesting things that people want to learn about in the weight room, uh, which is velocity-based training. So there's, there's five basic questions you got to ask. What is velocity-based training really? Um, how do we measure it? What's it good for? The different types of equipment and brands to look at and best practices. So before we get into barbell velocity, Okay, which is the primary metric that people are looking for. Not looking at, you know, some people look at kettlebells and dumbbells. But, you know, the, the meat and potatoes is a, is a barbell speed. Okay. You got to step back, see the big picture. The number one metric in sport, sport is probably momentum, a product of the speed of the athlete and their weight. So, you know, I find it really strange that everyone has these, these, you know, these ebooks on, you know, uh, you know, all these 
you know, weight room programs and stuff like that when the reality is you want to make sure that the weight training, which is a small component of a small component, is feeding somehow into the results on speed and agility. So velocity-based training, you know, most people think about just simply bar speed, but really people want to know about body speed. Another area which is going to be, is going to be really interesting is uh, ball speed, specifically medicine balls. Now that you have these sensors um, assessed to perform, is starting to be able to provide data of medicine ball output. So I'll get into that later because they also provide something called the bar sensei, which is specifically looking at barbell velocities. And when you're looking at measuring barbell velocity, there's different ways to do it. You can use a cable and seeing sort of, uh, you know, almost like a, uh, a yo-yo of where is the barbell starting and where is it stopping in terms of speed. You know, with a, you, know you attach the cable to it. It sounds primitive. Everyone wants wireless, but I, I laugh at that when they're using bands and chains and they said, oh, this is wireless, Carl. We're excited. Yet the problem is they have to remember that not only is the wireless sensors that you're seeing with the accelerometry, they're usually – got to plug it in to power it down the road. So you know, nothing's truly wireless and do we really need wireless? I'm not sure. I think there's a convenience to it. But the reality is that LPTs okay, um, are still important. And the 2007 study studied uh, – you know, compared a – uh, a force plate and try to understand the limitations to using like a product like Tendo and Gymaware. But the beauty of it is that mathematics using displacement of the bar, not just the velocity of it, was able to overcome that, you know, that limitation to not getting that XYZ data of an accelerometer. So, you know, the question is, is Tendo and Gymaware still valid? Yeah, um, it is. Uh, only Gymaware is able to really make that adjustment based upon the limitations of not having that X coordinate. So, you know, move that moves on to the wearables or the pseudo wearables. Bar Sensei attaches to the bar, okay, and push strength attaches to the wrist or the forearm, which in turns attaches to the bar itself. So, what you're really trying to do is find a way to capture the velocity of the bar, maybe displacement a little bit, you know, how much, you know, on a squat, you're getting nice depth. And then, of course, uh, you know, eventually um, looking at um, the trajectory of everything that's going on with the X and Y and Z. No one's really worried about transverse plane stuff, but with the research, you have to address, you know, a little bit of, uh, of bar path. Um, so that gets into something kind of tricky. Um, now, how to use this? You know, most people look at it as, you know, that instant feedback, leaderboards, etc. They're trying to get, you know, meters per second, you know, try to keep in a certain threshold. Uh, that has some value, but you're really trying to get output, you know, either average power, peak power, um, you know, power drop off, that type of thing. And then you're drilling down maybe even further to RFD. You know, like a, a taller athlete having a, a longer pull on a on a on a box. Excuse me, a, a uh, you know, like a snatches from boxes, that type of thing. So there's so much you can do with it. We're just hitting the tip of the iceberg right now, um, but you got to be prepared. And, and what you're trying to do is decide. Okay, you want a robust model? Yeah, I love Gemaware, um, and that's sort of more of a uh, uh, 
a facility product. Um, you have something on the on the other end, which is push, which is a wearable, a true wearable. So the athlete's wearing it on their body, um, connecting to again uh, a smartphone or a tablet. Um, Gym Aware does the same, and Bar Sensei does the same as well. And Bar Sensei, of course, attaching to a barbell only, um, that's getting some good information. Uh, now, how do we use this stuff? Okay, do you need it? Nope. It's again, it's, it's one part of it. Is it useful? Very, very much. And here's two reasons to do it. A, you're going to try to manage power, like we know, and doing squat jumps instead of vertical jumps on a force plate is a far more intelligent way to to follow athletes in terms of the weight room and the relationships of the weight room. I do like vertical jumping and jump testing, and you can do that with different devices, but you don't get a training effect, okay? So very few people become freaks from just doing vertical jumps, squat jumps or counter movement jumps. Usually you use an overload of, of weight to create these improvements. So I like to, uh, as Marco Cardinale used a, a beautiful term to me on an email, he said embedded testing. So I like once a week at most is to do some sort of, uh, you know, warm up that gets you toasty, gets you kind of ready to go, aroused and, and prepared with the sympathetic nervous system, you know, getting ready to, to do some quality loading. And what we want to do is see, okay, let's see maximal output. And, you know, using just a bar, about 20 kilos or more, you can add a little bit more weight. A jump squat, rather repeated or just, you know, one at a time, you can start seeing this output and just watching each week. So sort of the, you know, the shadow to conditioning is, you know, that, that yin to yang relationship of, of conditioning is, is the power. So how is power changing? And then, of course, how is your recovery runs changing weekly? Very simple and pragmatic way to monitor athletes. So I just like the, the jump squats because, you know, a lot of athletes can do them. Not every athlete can do the Olympic lifts. And, you know, you're not going to see a lot of uh, teams in Spain and, and the U.K. And, and for, for soccer clubs, you know, looking at uh, clean and jerk data. So this is a way that everyone can get information. And so I just look at the weekly trends. Um, there's some other secret sauce that, you know, I'll get into – maybe another uh, podcast down the road. But that's a, a very uh, real-world way to get that information. And so I think the, to, to decide on it, if you're going to a one-to-one technology route with push strength, you know, I think, you know, you've got to remember, uh, you know, the strap is going to get sweaty. you got to clean it. So there's, you know, wearables have its, has its uh, you know, its need. But with wearables, you're, you're kind of tagging the athlete a bit. So, you know, you're having a higher uh, validity to is the data coming from that person. Um, all the apps need to, you know, have some sort of input because none of them are actually saying that the weight that's being put on the bar is a number. So that's actually athlete rated, you know, or subjective. You know, anyone can say, you know, even if they're uh, trying to do a good job, they can accidentally put in the wrong load. So you got to watch the athletes. You know, the last thing you want to do is, is find out an athlete is, you know, kind of gaming the system and trying to, you know, uh, give the input that, um, you know, coaches want by putting a fictitious number. I've done, you know, some things to actual weight plates to, to prevent that from happening. It's just too expensive and there's a point where, you know, you got to develop some sort of trust 
and do your job when you're watching people. Um, so that's a, a good way to, to, to use velocity-based training um, in the weight room is to, to use some sort of jump metric or pseudo uh, uh, you know, speed squat activity, something that you can do that's easy, um, it's, it's raw, so that you can uh, use it week to week with a whole bunch of different athletes and it doesn't you know, uh, uh, interfere with different levels of ability. Um, so what you're trying to do is, is, is get volume and, 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 and looking at this information, but you also want to see changes week to week. So that is probably the best practice that I know of that everyone can benefit from. Um, I do like using um, for some of the sports that you know, are less allergic to the iron sweat, such as rugby and football, um, you know, uh, bench press and looking at uh, you know, a, a way to look at non-lower body fatigue, although central and peripheral can never be mixed, or excuse me, isolated. Uh, it's nice to see you know, during the off-seasons for non-linemen, uh, 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 for example, are, are, are athletes that have some upper body interaction during practices and games. So maybe during the off-season you're, you're trying to watch for some sort of central component. It's not perfect, definitely not, but yeah, it's really interesting to see fatigue coming from conditioning and lower body lifting compared to something that's a little bit more central like upper body lifting. Um, so that's one thing you can kind of uh, play around with. Is it perfect? Of course not. Is it helpful? I think it is. So those are the things that I'm looking for um, and then that's and then those things are realistic. Oh, it's, a, it's a great topic and uh... So much great information to take in there, but I'm just going to move on a little bit and ask you about uh, jumping. You've wrote a couple of articles uh, about using jumping for speed athletes, but I just want to pick your brain on jumping for team sport athletes and if the kind of uh, if the training is completely different, is it the same? What kind of crossover there is? So plyometrics and applying uh, that modality to team sports, you got three challenges. First, uh, training in general for team sports is not as important as Olympic sport. So you're going to get an attitude of the guys just wanting to play or practice. So there's something against, uh, you know, a, a factor that's kind of working against coaches. Second is the amount of training time and flexibility that you have with a team sport. So track and field athletes can take off indoor uh, competitions and pick their, you know, their battles. Um, team sport, you can't do that. So there's another thing against working against coaches. And then finally, the groups are probably a lot larger. You usually have uh, you know, a, a coaching ratio that's not as effective as you know, you know, when you're dealing with a, a small group of uh, elite sprinters or jumpers. So you know, those are the three factors you have to think about. And I like to, to get the information. If, if you really want to do a good job with plyometrics, I suggest you look at the resources of Bushek Snader. Uh, not that it's a magical roadmap to you know applying plyometrics in team sports. And what's great about Boo is he has a background in, in football, um, so he's not. Uh, this is you know specifically American football, so it's not like this is just okay. This is great for track and field athletes, but I can't use it. He understands the the specifics of you know team sports, so you know it's not information that's in a vacuum. Um, and so, you know, what I like to look at is plyometrics for team sports is really good for injury reduction and elastic training for agility improvements, you know, change of direction, and then a simple way to get some power when 
uh, you know, sometimes athletes might not be as sophisticated in the weight room. So they, it's, you know, clo- it's on the field. It might be a little bit more interested in doing stuff that is, you know, uh, less weight room based and a little bit more athletic, um, if you will. Not to say that the weight room activities aren't as athletic. Clearly doing any type of, uh, you know, Olympic lift, it has a skill component. But a lot of athletes naturally gravitate to plyometrics. So then we got to get into the uh, minimum effective dose and the maximum safe dose. You don't want to have your athletes looking like, you know, uh, kangaroos because, you know, elastic training is pretty tough on the tendons. There's, a, you know, a lot of skill necessary. Everything has risk-to-return ratios. you got to consider that. So two things I like to do um, with athletes is let's look at injury reduction. That's prior, a priority. Medial and lateral hops on one leg, you know, so the protocols that uh, Boosh Schexnader and Dan Paff have been proponents of is a godsend. Um, proprioception is not jumping on a Airx pad and trying to balance yourself. Uh, the ground contact times are much faster and you're landing on a, usually, unless it's really slick and the ground is really beat up, more of a stable surface than, you know, a Dyna disc or some sort of blue pad. So I like medial and lateral hops. It just gets that, that, that glute, um, you know, that, that medial glute. Um, and, you know, it really gets the hip engaged if you do it right. So if you are teaching it right, getting a nice balance between hip and knee, uh, I've done wireless EMG, and yes, you're getting more of the butt if you do it right. Um, I don't like to get into hip and knee dominant discussions because if you're doing good training, you're going to get a good recruitment of muscles groups. So, But specifically, there is a difference, and you can get some targeting there if you do the exercises properly. But usually if you're doing any exercise properly, you're getting a nice recruitment of muscle groups. So that's the, the first exercise. Um, I don't like jumping on box on boxes. Um, I think that people equate for box height versus body displacement, and that's uh, it's not the same. And you know, looking like the cover of a uh, Moby's play album, um, I hate it. I see these athletes get their knees to their throat, and they're focusing on getting knee flexion. Um, excuse me, uh, getting hip and knee flexion versus really extension of the of the lower body. So I like to focus on, instead of worrying about distances per se, um, I like ground contacts and quality of movement. So I like to do a lot of jumps in place before we start moving uh, horizontally because then you got to worry about is the, is the athlete approach walking um, at a higher speed. You know, For example, a lot of hurdles that people set up, um, the distances and heights have to be really customized based upon athlete. A 6'6 lineman that's 300 pounds or more in the NFL is drastically different than a 165-pound soccer player. So, you know, all of this stuff you have to look at. And so I like a lot of just simple jumps in place, and that leads back to some of the jump squatting for in the weight room. So a lot of stuff has to be like a stem cell, which allows to uh, some sort of you know, progression down over time so that it forms uh, solutions without teaching a lot. I mean, you got to go and, and, and coaching is teaching, but with such limited time, you got to remove the learning component and use the innate uh, uh, 
abilities of an athlete and let them um, you know acquire uh, these skill sets with artificially cueing them and, and, and explaining things. Just make it flow. So you know I like a lot of in place jumps and focusing on that, and then lateral and medial hops. And then once they get a little bit better, you know, then you start doing the, the hurdles and, you know, so you get into some rhythm, rhythmic uh, uh, components and, you know, leave it like that. Once you've kind of maxed out that information, you know, starting to get into something that's really driving uh, the adaptations for plyos, it's just not worth it in team sport. So those are my philosophies and theories and then the practical applications of plyometrics um, with team sport. That's some absolutely great information again, Carl. Um, but we're at the 45 minute mark and I just wanted to wrap up there. Uh, I know I said I wouldn't keep you for more than half an hour, but just like to thank you again. Um, and where can people keep in touch with what kind of things you're doing? Um, articles, where people can catch you on social media, your website again. Again, thanks for having me, Rob. Um, if you want to reach out to me, go to spikesonly.com. And there's a contact page. Uh, I'll be writing articles for Freelap USA until the end of 2014, and I'm going to take a hiatus. Um, you know, I write because I want to communicate and share, uh, maybe sometimes a a different opinion. And I think every coach should uh, put their thoughts down. You don't have to have a blog. You can simply write an article, and you end up learning a lot about the training process and and adaptation and all of this stuff that makes athletes better by just simply putting your thoughts down and sort of like a, a captain's log, if you will. Um, and, you know, so that's my goals. I'm going to be attending different conferences like everyone else. Um, I'm doing one private workshop for a team, um, you know, in January. And then, you know, that's pretty much it. I just want to make sure that technology and all these equipment that we're using is, is better because, uh, you know, as we're evolving and, and how technology is uh, rising and data, the need for it, good data is uh, becoming more and more important. You know, we're having a lot of problems that are uh, really affecting um, how a coach, you know, their daily lives are, are being, you know, changed from the need to prove that they're doing a good job and, you know, kind of making sure finger pointing isn't going to the, the, the poor strength coach in team sport. And, uh, you know, so I wrote an article just recently for the Boston Sports Medicine Performance Group. I think that's a great resource. And, uh, you know, so if you want to just follow anything I'm doing, um, you know, I think you should just go to freelapusa.com and, and then just follow Spikes Only for the uh, next couple months. And we'll look forward to some great changes. So thanks again. No, it's been my pleasure, Kyle. It's been absolutely fantastic. Your, your kind of knowledge on, on all these different subjects. Um, so yeah, that's it. Uh, I will speak to you soon and keep in touch. Okay, thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Carl. I certainly did. And like I said at the start, I've visited and revisited and revisited uh, a number of times before the podcast went live. Um, so I hope your notebooks aren't too, too full after taking uh, lots from that. Um, just before I forget, the, the free download that Carl has provided on paceperformance.co.uk if you go to the blog and podcast tab uh, you can listen to all the live uh, the podcasts on there as well as download the uh, the free PDF from Carl so just like to thank him again uh, for the millionth time but I will um, catch up with you in the next episode <laughs>